History is an informative and fun deep dive into the workers behind the professions. I'm your host, Cassie Townsend, a jacket of all trades. We'll cover the ins and outs of jobs, careers, and the daily grind that led professionals to where they are and where they're going. On today's show, we're going to talk to a senior manager of marketing by the name of Ryan Irwin. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Cassie. Thank you. I'm excited (laughs) to be here. Welcome to Work History. Um, Ryan, tell me about your job. What is a senior manager of marketing? Yeah, so one of the fun things about marketing is that the titles um, don't mean anything at all. Marketing people are, I mean, you know, it's part of marketing. Like it's all wordsmithing and trying to like sound really cool and really good. Senior manager of marketing in my case means like it's, it's almost defined as other duties as required. Like I, I, I report up to a senior director of marketing. I have people beneath me that are, you know, a, a, you know, my a manager in their title, so affiliate manager, or marketing manager, or analyst manager, whatever. Um, but it basically comes down to where do we get the phone calls from? So looking at whether it's, you know, buying them from, you know, some third party that, that generates the traffic themselves and the calls themselves, or, you know, working with an internal team that runs paid search or, or runs our website or whatever, you know, or, you know, working with, um, you know, whoever does our brand TV and deciding how much we spend in each one of those channels and, what we expect out of each one and what the quality is that we get out of each one. And then kind of trying to orchestrate it all together into one thing, a plan. Okay. So, um, so what I understand of, uh, part of the business that you're in is that being a senior, there's a hierarchy, right? Yeah, so, sure. so there's a, um, are you the topmost person in charge or is there someone above you that you answer to? No. Oh yeah. I definitely, I have, uh, so I, I, the person directly over me is the senior director of marketing. The person over him is, uh, let's see, he reports up to a senior vice president of marketing. And then she reports up to, I think the president of marketing, I think is his title. Um, but again, it's also one of those things that it's all the, the titles are almost kind of inconsequential. It's just a matter of like, you know, yeah, you, you heard it, you heard senior manager marketing and assumed that there's some sort of seniority in there. Right. That's the, that's the idea is that when I, you know, when I come across somebody in, you know, outside the company or sometimes even inside the company, they know, you know, okay, this is a person with some level of seniority in the organization. You know, I, it, it doesn't mean that you're old. Yeah. Well, I mean, it might, <laughs> in my case. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you're not that old. I'm, I'm somewhere in between. I'm definitively middle-aged. Fantastic. Um, exactly. Um, but Aren't yeah, we all in a way, I, you know, one way or another. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. That gets yeah, deep. At some point we are middle-aged. <laughs> at some point there's a middle and you just never know where it just is. Just don't know what yeah, it is. It's and a that's okay. Game. It's yeah. like a belt. You don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, let's explore manager. What okay. is what is manager? That means you're, you're in charge of a team. So instead right. of having people above you now, let's talk about the people mm-hmm. below you. Yeah. So it's, it, again, that's interesting because I some of the people below me have manager in their title too. Oh, but they okay. don't. But they're not seniors. They're no, exactly right. 
but they might, you know, like one of, you know, two of them are affiliate marketing managers. So they, um, work with our third party partners to get, you know, phone calls or leads from them for our sales team to work, you know, um, but they're managing that relationship for, for me, it does mean, it means one, yeah, I manage a group of people. It also means I'm managing the lead plan as a whole. So I, I work with, so, you know, sometimes I'll step in and work with some of the external folks as well. Um, but for the most part, I'm dealing with, you know, I've got my people that I directly manage. And then I've got all these other people and all these other different roles that, you know, they manage their specific discipline, their specific marketing discipline. And I'll, you know, kind of bring them together and try to weave all those things, all those people are doing into the the monthly marketing plan. That's what I'm managing. So it's a little both. It's people and like a a plan as well. Okay. Um, So kind of like what a project manager would do. And maybe our listeners don't know what a project manager is. I happen to know what that is uh, because for me, it equates to when I was in the video game industry and um, I was a producer. So I was basically in charge of my team. So my team was a developer, a designer, mm-hmm. and an artist, the leads in all of their fields. And then each one of them had subordinates that were um, like the designer usually worked by themselves, mm-hmm. but the artist would be um, in charge of all of the different artists. Yep. So they would have an animation artist. They'd have a graphics artist that's just 2D stuff and yeah. and work with making sure that all of those people we're doing their job. Then I would just talk to the the person, my one person, mm-hmm. and they would talk to their other people. Yeah. And yeah. that's how the the game of telephone was played yeah. <laughs> back yeah. in those days. I'm sure it's probably run very similarly now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it um, seems to be. Yeah. Let's see. So senior check, manager mm-hmm. check of that's a, you know, irrelevant uh, yeah. here. Uh, <laughs> marketing. Yeah. So you concentrate on, um, there's a lot of things with marketing. Right. There's, uh, there's graphics, there's wall clings, there's, um, stickers, there's what kind yeah. of things do you focus on? Um, well, and this is kind of where it comes into that idea of like other duties as required, you know, um, one of the, you know, where I, where I'm at is a, is a pretty big company. Um, and I was brought in initially, it's like three years ago now, um, to start up this, this new vertical basically for the company and the company basically recognized, okay, well, there's a, there's a big market here. We should try and figure out how to do that. And then it was on me to just try and figure out how to make the phone ring, you know? And as we've done that, it's been like, well, I think we should start, you know, we've been doing this thing, you know, really well for a long time and grown with that, but I think we can get better quality leads or better quality phone calls from this thing over here. Are you able to talk about what that thing is without um, giving away the company? I can, uh, well, I mean, I, I can like, talk about. Did well, you so give what, away candy bars oh. <laughs> and then the candy bars didn't work? So let's sure. go to music videos. It is, well, okay. So I see what you're asking. Um, so we started with basically buying phone calls from third party vendors, right? So they do all of their front end marketing to try and develop the phone call and get somebody on the phone that's interested in our product. Okay. And then they'll transfer them over to us. Oh. And we say, okay, we'll pay you X amount of dollars for every phone call you send us. Right. Oh, okay. Um, as we, and that's fine. That's a, but that's a, that's a numbers game. And a lot of different industries function with 
um, the, you know, the affiliate space or aggregators or whatever, you know, there's a bunch of different names for it, but it's basically that it's a different company that's developing the lead for you and then you buy it from them. Right. Okay. Um, and that's, like I said, it's a numbers game. There are a lot of companies that do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they put their skin in the game to try and develop it and hope that they can sell it off to somebody like me who's buying the lead from them. Right. The, the problem is that's not one, that's not the best user experience in the world, you know, because now you're on the, if you're the consumer, somebody, generally somebody has called you, like you filled out a form online, right? They've called you to say, okay, I got your request, you know, ask you a bunch of questions say, okay, I've got somebody that I think can help you. So now you got to be transferred to somebody else. Yeah, We get it. We usually have screeners that, you know, Check, you know, ask them a bunch of questions too to make sure we're actually getting somebody quality before we send them to any of our sales folks who have quotas and all kinds. Of, you know, they have a whole team structure and and they're held accountable to numbers too. So we need to make sure we're sending them only quality stuff. So the user, meantime, has talked to two, three, four people before they ever get to the person that can actually help them. Right. So Whoa. not the best user experience in the world, but yeah, there's a lot of numbers you can get a lot of those calls. Right. Um, so, and we started with that because that's easy to scale up. It's easy to start doing that and just start doing numbers. Over time, it became like, okay, look, we're doing this stuff, but we should be doing the things that those third-party people are doing to get their calls going, yeah. right? We should just get yeah. them to come straight to us rather than through these Cut out the middleman. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of like, okay, what are we doing with our website? Okay, well, how, how are we building, you know there's a whole discipline to managing a website and, you know, getting enough traffic to the website. And then what happens, you know, getting the right traffic to the website, what do they do once they're on the website? How do you make sure that, you know, they actually make it to the form to fill out the form, but when they fill out the form, they actually know what they're asking for so that you don't waste people's time. And there's all, there's a whole discipline to that. Right. Right. I've never, I've done a bunch of different jobs in marketing before I got to the point where I was just kind of orchestrating these things. That's one of the ones that I never did. That's, you know, search engine optimization and content management and stuff like that. I know enough to know if those teams are doing things uh-huh. and if they're doing enough of the right things. I'm not the one that's going to get in the back end of the code and play with meta tags and stuff. Right. Not my thing. Um, but that's one channel. The other one, you know, that's that's all organic search. So you're trying to get if somebody searches for your product or your brand name, you show up in the organic listings on Google and they click on that. That's and that's great because it's free, you know, so you don't Mm -hmm. you're you're paying the people to manage the website. But otherwise, you're not paying for that lead at all. Right. Then you've got uh, paid search. So same thing. You search for the product or the name or whatever the ads that pop up at the top. Right. Above the organic searches. And they, you know, Google usually Google changes this all the time, but they'll say it'll say ad. Yeah. Or it'll be like in a yellow box or something. You know, they've they've changed. There's a. um a uh, what do you call that a side hustle where uh-huh. you can actually work by doing ads like oh, yeah. going on to google searching companies and oh that doesn't have an ad and then submit it and you oh, can make money by doing that so, <laughs> i haven't seen that yeah that's, that's a thing that exists for side hustlers there is a whole there's a whole industry there's i've said for as long as I've worked on interactive marketing, you can make a lot of money on the internet if you don't have any scruples at all. You know? right, right, um, right. And especially it's like the third party space. We would have this when I worked uh, at a couple of ad agencies, we would, we would do the same kind of thing. We'd buy like third party leads from people. Um, 
but we would have, you know, we had to have really, really tight rigor around measuring the quality mm-hmm. and whether or not, you know, yeah, we bought those leads, but were we able to get a hold of them? Did they actually fill out the form? Were they really interested? You know, right. because in that model, somebody can just sit there and they would do this and just type out the phone book, go through the phone book and just fill out wow. forms all day, just going through the phone book and they get paid, you know, 20, 30, 15, 40 50 bucks Whatever per it is. lead, yeah. depending on what it is. And there were plenty of agencies out there and aggregators out there that would buy those leads all day and either take them and didn't pay enough attention to it, or they'd sell it off to a bunch of other buyers. And then it's super muddy whether or not the quality's there. They'll do it forever. You know, right. they can, you know, you can, right. how many times can you fill out a form in a day? You right. Know? right. And you spend eight hours a day filling that out and you sell those for, whatever, 10, 20 bucks a piece, you're making a bunch of money real fast. Okay. Note Um, to sell. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So my part of my job has always been in one form or another, looking at that traffic, looking at those leads we're getting in and then doing the math and tracking them through the sales funnel and figuring out, okay, we bought them and we bought them for this much money. Was it actually worth that money? Does it actually back out profitably? So there's a whole lot of math on the back end of it too. And um, attribution to look at where the, where it came from. But so with paid search, typically there's a bunch of different models, but you, you know, the easiest method is somebody types that into the search engine and they click on your ad. You've paid, you pay Google for that click, right? Oh, okay. And you tell Google how much you want to pay and you have a bunch of different search terms and a bunch of different ways you might match on that search term and all that stuff. And there's again, a whole discipline behind that because, how closely the words in your ads match those terms, how closely the page that you point them to when they click on that ad, you decide as the buyer, which page that ad points to, how closely does the content on that page match the content of the ad, which, and how much does that match the search term that they sent? You know, all of that stuff influences Google calls it a quality score, but there's a whole black box of things that Google won't tell you. Um, but all of that influences how high you rank and how much you have to pay to rank that high. Hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of bidding strategies you can do and all that. There's a whole discipline to it as well. I have done some of that in the past. Not my favorite thing in the world, but it's, you know, I, I still do a little bit of it here and there. But again, I'll go to our team that manages paid search and say, okay, how much can we expect? What, you know, these are the results. What do your keywords look like? What are you buying that you shouldn't be buying? You know, what is, you know, what, where are the search trends that you could start adding keywords to bid on and things like mm-hmm. that, you know? Um, and then, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, the brand TV is a whole other thing, you know, cause you're, you got to decide, you know, what networks you want to run on, what time of day you want to run on, what programming's running during that time of day. Um, you know, what rotator you're buying in. So are you buying a specific, you can go all the way down to buying, a specific pod position within a specific break in a specific program, you know? Wow. So you can say, you know, I know that whatever, I don't Days know why this pops lives. in my head. I was going to say night court. Screw oh, it. night court. Yeah. Let's go old school. Yeah. <laughs> the very school. best intro night music court. of all time. Um, the, you know, I want to be in the first commercial break in the, I want to be the first spot in the first commercial break. You know, yeah. as soon as it fades to commercial, my spot runs Interesting. first pod position. If the more specificity you add to it, the more expensive it gets, you know, Mm -hmm. so you have to do, there's a whole discipline again to how you test and how much data you need to know, you know, okay, well I can buy that specifically, or I can buy a whole rotator and buy 10 AM to 6 PM 
and I want to get any somewhere in there, I want to get five different spots to run. Okay. And it's up to the station to figure out, you know, how to, how to place them. And then you can add, you know, well, I don't want anyone else in my industry that could be a competitor to run in the same commercial break I do. Well, that makes it a little more expensive because then you got to block out everybody, you know, all kinds of stuff you can do there. And then there's, you have to figure out how to attribute it. Cause if you run a bunch of TV, most people anymore don't see a TV spot and then call the number on the spot, even though, right. and, and I mean, the company I work for is, it is direct response marketing. It's that's where most of what I've done my career it's very much about how much did I spend and what exactly did it earn me, you know? So everything has a phone number. Everything has a call to action. It's all call now or click here or whatever, or learn more, um, which again, whole other discipline to writing those calls to action. For sure. Um, yeah. But anymore, when I started, I started by, as a TV buyer, I started buying, you know, negotiating, buying TV spots. Um, back then people called the number, you know, right. early 2000s people, that's what they did. Um, now, and this is all age groups for the most part, surprisingly, they see that ad and they go and look it up online. You know, they might, most often they go and they look up your brand name online, which is again, that's when you want to tie in that Google. Yeah. You want to make sure you're ranking for that. Yeah. Typically you're, it's not a huge problem to rank organically for your own brand name. Cause mm-hmm. it's usually it's in your URL and you say your own brand name all over the site and stuff. So you anyway, just got yeah. all the signals are there for Google. And they're like, yeah, this is the right one paid search though. They're used to Google used to be adamant about not letting people bid on their competition's brand name. Oh. They got out of that. When I, you know, when I first started buying paid search, you could file a report to Google and say, these people are, you know, here's the ad, here's the screenshot, here's the keyword that I put in, here's the geo that I was on, they're bidding on my brand name, and Google would not just kill off that ad, they'd ding your account for it. Like, your whole account would be harder to buy for a while, it's just as punishment. Wow. They took it super seriously. They stopped doing that. And there Mm -hmm. are a lot of, you know, they'll they'll talk about a lot of reasons why, but they make more money that way. Right. Because I can bid on my competition's brand name and if I, and, and genuinely, if I, if I do a search for their brand name and there's not an ad that pops up that for them at their site, I can go bid on their brand name. And now my ad will pop up above their organic website search, Whoa. which means it in most of the time with user behavior, although users have gotten smart about knowing what are the which ads and what? what's organic. Yeah but there's still a real healthy percentage of people that are just going to click on the first thing on the page for sure. And Google does, and Google knows that. And that's why they put one, two, three ads above the organic searches all the time. Yeah. So they get paid when you click those, whether it's relevant or not. Personally, if I see the word AD yeah. <laughs> up there, I scroll until I find the actual. Absolutely. And, and a lot of people do that, huh. um, but a whole lot of people don't. <laughs> so yeah, wild. you have to, you know, there, there's, uh, I, I've personally written articles about this. Like you have to bid on your own brand name because okay. somebody's going to, Yeah. you know, and especially if you, if your brand name has, well, even if not the simplest version, if, if your brand name has the name of what you do in it, uh-huh. you know, if you're a copy store uh-huh. and you're, you're, you know, Joe's Cassie's copies, copy yeah. Store. yeah, somebody is going to be running ads for copy stores. Somebody will be bidding on the term copies, Copy. you know? Yeah. So somebody's ad is going to be up there. If you have your brand name in there and you're bidding for Cassie's copies, your quality score is going to be high enough because it says it in your ad and it says it in your URL and it says it all over your website that Google knows, well, if they're searching for this, they're definitely looking for that. 
So huh. they'll serve that super high as long as you've got enough bid there to make it worthwhile. Weird. But it's entirely possible that somebody else could come in, that your comp- that Ryan's copies could come in and just bid the hell out of it and still show up above your ad. It's hard to do because my quality score on your term would be crap. Right. But it's possible. Weird. If I wanted to pay Google that much money, they'd totally let me. Of course they would. Yeah, They exactly. like the money. Everybody yeah. does. But then running, right, like, running your TV spots also like pushes how much paid search traffic you get right. to. So you've got to like, that's where it gets complicated buying TV now because you can't just look at how many times the phone rang. You have to look like, well, I spent a bunch of money over here and then I got a bunch of return over there. So this probably influenced that, that. Yeah. but it's hard to prove. So it's, yeah, that's where just, it, that's yeah. just seeing the spikes in the yeah. data. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, let's, let's rewind a bit. Okay. You didn't, you weren't born and thought I'm going to be a senior <laughs> marketer, a senior manager of marketing. Right. So what did you dream about doing when you were a kid, when you were like three or yeah. um, number? Up until I basically senior year of high school and the last part of senior year of high school, I was going to major in music. Um, oh, okay. Ma- my mom is a classically trained musician. Um, she went to, I'm going to botch, botch it all, but I know she went to Southern Illinois University. She was the first woman to pass a conducting juries there with, with full, whatever, full marks. I don't really get how juries work, but go mama. the, the conducting is apparently traditionally a very male thing. Oh yeah. Women for sure. don't do Just it. like a lot of well, things. Yeah. In the, <laughs> most things. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> most things. Uh, and just anything in society yeah, really. Pretty much. But yeah. uh, that's awesome for yeah. your mom. Congratulations. Oh yeah. She, and she did. I mean, she had a pretty good pedigree. Like she was offered, She's still mad about it. She got offered a scholarship to Juilliard and didn't go what? because she didn't want to move that far away from home. Uh, mom. <laughs> Come on, mom. Juilliard, um, yeah. a scholarship. Yeah, she was, and oh she's genuinely, gosh. she's a brilliant musician. Um, wow. We don't, we don't talk a lot now for other reasons, but that was the don't thing. Need to know. For as bad as it, as it, as that relationship ever gets, that's the thing we always have in common. Yeah. And I, you know, I, when my, my parents got divorced when I was little, so I was at mom's house all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, you know, she was a, she was a Pentecostal minister, uh, minister of music, uh, and a classically trained musician. So she was always, she always had something going on in the church. She always had something going on with the choir mm-hmm. and she was always teaching private lessons at home. So I was, I was kind of left to my own devices a lot, but I was always playing music. You know, uh, when I was really, really little, she owned and operated a school of fine arts and uh they didn't have money for a babysitter so they just set me down with like initially like kids music theory books and just like here just read this and i'd do all the workbooks and stuff and i thought it was interesting as hell and would just keep doing more and more of that you know kept getting higher so eventually they just started making me take piano lessons from one of the teachers at mom's school wow so when i was free babysitting yeah exactly that was really it so it was about four i took i started taking piano lessons and then over the years bounced from it get it gets frustrating when your mom is that good and piano was her core instrument. It's frustrating to learn piano when that's sitting there in the house with you, you know? Um, so I got tired of piano and I went to violin and trumpet and, um, I took like one drum lesson one time. That's never been, I've never been able to be a drummer. Um, but I eventually landed on guitar when I was eight and just stuck with that ever since. Um, cool. and I wanted, yeah, so I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I studied the shit out of music all the time. I loved music theory. I loved playing music and learning everything I could about. It's just fascinating. 
um, to me. And it, and it's, you know, it's basically math anyway. Um, so it's really there and there's all kinds of, you know, like there's a, a what was it the Cicero's dreams is a Greek philosophy book where they talked about how the, basically how music was the foundation of math. Mm. And then it kind of grew out of that. And there's studies that show that kids who are getting a music education are better, do better in school because it, it just activates a different part of your brain. Um, and they do better in math because there's, you know, there's fours and there's threes and you count to four and then this one's, but this is a half note. So you're only counting to two and this is a whole note. So you count all four and then you already know fractions. Yeah, exactly. You're subdividing it down into quarter notes and eighth notes and 16th notes. And, you know, so there's a lot of benefit there, but, um, yeah. So uh, over the years that was, there was never a question. That's what I was going to do. Um, and then I got to senior year. Yeah. And started touring and I was going to go to Southern Illinois university or, um, uh, Baker was going to Baker as a good music school. They were going to let me write my program for theory and comp. Um, Southern Illinois accepted me already. Uh, UMKC, I think was going to, I was going to do something there. Um, but eventually I, it was seriously late in my senior year or about halfway through, I guess I realized that I would never make any money <laughs> if I managed, if I majored in theory and comp and be like, I'm going to do this my whole life. I'm going to eventually I'll burn out because it's work then. And this is like, this is the thing I'm passionate about mm -hmm. and I love very dearly doing. Uh, but once it becomes a job, it's a job, you know, right. and it's going to be a job that I never make any money doing. So, um, I was like, I had a real, I thought real hard about it. It's like, okay, is there anything else that I'm good at? And the only other thing I've ever been consistently able to do was write, like write like words. Um, so I was like, all right, I'll major in journalism. Fine. So I went to university of Kansas to get a journalism degree. Um, found out pretty quickly. I didn't want to do print journalism. So I started studying broadcast journalism, found out pretty quickly that writing for, and it's the same with print as well, but writing for journalistic purposes is awful. <laughs> it is so shackling. You have to follow the AP style guide. And there are some really specific conventions to it that are, um, super unnatural to write that way. There's no, there's, it just like, it felt like the passion was all gone out of it. So I ended up going the, uh, the marketing route in journalism school. You either went news or marketing. So oh. I majored in, uh, journalism, strategic communications and, uh, yeah, got jobs at ad agencies and that was it. Cool. Yeah. That's a hell of an answer for dream job when you were a kid. <laughs> the opposite. It was, it's not at all what I'm doing now. But, <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, what was your first job? So oh, actually, how old were you when you had your first job? Uh, it was probably like actual paycheck job. Uh, probably 14. Yeah. Because I know I couldn't the, have been picked up. I couldn't drive myself. I remember that. Yeah. The, so, the age, legal age of working yeah. well, in, in Kansas like, is a lot younger yeah well this was in the 90s in oklahoma too so they oh, you yeah. could do whatever the hell also you want to different. do in oklahoma yeah. yeah um yeah i'm pretty sure it was 14 um it was uh i was i was cleaning rugs at a persian import store oh yeah um my again mom uh the 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 church that she was a pastor at had a like sub church they had one that was in spanish and one that was in korean and they had one that was in farsi and the 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 main minister of that church, the senior pastor of the, of the Iranian Christian church also owned a Persian import store in Tulsa where I grew up. 
Um, so yeah, the, I got my first job there. Um, yeah, cleaning, cleaning their rugs. And occasionally they'd call back into the warehouse and I would come out and help like flip through the rugs and show them and yeah. stuff. And then, um, they did a lot of like, and this is probably still true of, of like high end rug stores. Um, you'd bundle a bunch of them up and take them to somebody's house and then like lay them in the house. So it would be, there's a specific way to bundle them and everything, but you'd drive it across town into somebody to go to somebody's house and you'd move all their furniture out of the room and lay the carpet down and then move all their furniture back so they could see what it looks like. Cause they're going to spend 20 grand on a carpet. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah it's perfectly reasonable. Say no, but I want to see what it's going to look like in my house. You right. Know? Um, we did that a lot. That was hard work. Um, I bet. The, uh, and eventually they got busy enough. Um, I mean, they were, they had been in business for 20 years at that point already, but they got super busy at one point. So I got them to hire a couple of my friends to come and help out. After I left, one of them stayed there and worked there for several years. And eventually like, he was selling the rugs himself. Like oh, he wow. knew everything about those rugs. And it was, it was, it was intense. It was uh, one of those weird things. It was like, this is not something I would ever have expected out of him. Right. And he just like got in and learned it and loved doing it. He was good at it. Man. Huh. Now huh. he's, uh, uh, now he is the, uh, director, I can't remember his title is, but he runs the restaurant side of uh, the super upscale golf course in Tulsa huh. where like the PGA plays and stuff, wow. uh, which Fancy was just, again, Fancy. like his track to get there was so like, he was a bartender. He had dropped out of college. He just got a job as a bartender and just over the last 10, 15 years, slowly worked his way up to be, you know, he okay. He was general manager and then he flipped to a like slightly nicer restaurant, be a general manager and kind of work his way up. Yeah. Became a licensed sommelier, which again, like Whoa. this is a dirt, <laughs> dirt bag kid. I grew up in Tulsa with, you know, like yeah. this is not, I, it, it, this isn't any of us, our personalities at all, you know, right. but yeah. And then, yeah, landed this gig and was, I was in the PGA was there uh, just a few months. Wow. Maybe longer than that, but yeah, a few months ago. And I was talking to him about it and he's just like, I can't talk to you. I'm not going to talk to you for a couple of months. This is holy shit. This is awful. <laughs> wow, wow. Because yeah, I mean like all but of the let's not out ones. him. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just in case. You're right, you know, sure. I don't know who's going to listen to this. <laughs> so, okay. You, your dream job was to be a musician, but mm -hmm. your first job ever was cleaning, carpet. cleaning carpets at a rug store. Mm -hmm. Did you ever do anything that was, I think you mentioned your high school year, you were on tour. So did you ever get a job in that realm of music that you were able to apply your dream to? Not well. I mean, I, I've, I, so I played in just like local rock bands in Kansas city for you know, 10 or 15 years, but I did eventually get invited to uh, audition for a pirate themed Renaissance band um there plays at ren fairs okay um called the musical blades um, i spent uh right about 10 years with them this is actually my first season not with them um but they yeah i mean they they too were they we we played all over the country um for about 10 years and played uh around the world too we actually did a tour in ireland uh right before i left um but yeah that was that was the weird thing, you know, it was the weird path my life took was the, the, the biggest, most, you know, consequential thing I've ever done with music was dressed as a pirate and primarily played at Renaissance festivals. But, and you were there for about 10 years. Yeah. So how did you find that? I, I'm guessing that you were in marketing 
like you had a day yeah. job at that time. Oh yeah. Yeah. How did you get this gig with Music Ablaze? Yeah, it's weird. Um, it was because one of the other guys in the band, the other guitar player in the band, um, he and I had known each other from the rock scene in Kansas city. Um, he had played in bands, you know, twice as long as I had. Um, and we, you know, we hit it off and we were kind of around each other's circles and stuff a lot when we played in bands all those years. So, uh, at one point, yeah, he just messaged me and said, yeah, our, our, you know, quote unquote, funny guy in the band, you know, just left. So we need to find somebody to replace him. Would you be interested in coming to audition? Because um, you're funny. I guess. And, and a musician. <laughs> I guess. I guess he yeah. liked your humor as well. I, or he thought somebody would. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I initially said no, but they talked me into it and I, I went and auditioned and I actually really liked it. Um, or at least I had a good time. I, I, the music took me a little while to get used to because I was coming from playing in like metal bands, mm. you know, and now it's nearly entirely acoustic, you know? Right. Um, but I didn't, I, I grew up playing jazz and stuff anyway, so it was not that far off, but it mm. was, you know, enough. It was like, well, this is a change. Um, but yeah, once we, once we started playing gigs or once I started going out on tour with them and stuff, I absolutely fell in love with it. I, I love it. I, I absolutely loved it. Had you so, been to a Renaissance fair before being um, a performer? Two or? or three times and about 10 years before that. Oh, okay. So I'm not, I don't, I'm not a Renaissance fair person. Yeah. It's just never kind of been my thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it was at that point that was like, ah, it's a gig. It's a, it, you know, I, it was a band to me and a band that I got to go do a bunch of cool stuff, you know? Um, so it, it wasn't about the Ren fair for me. And over time, I, I got to know, you know, I got to know the fans and they, they, they have a really great fan base. Um, and they're, they're very responsive and it let me get, it let me access, especially as I got more comfortable, let me access all of these different things that I liked doing. There was performing and acting and there was a lot of improv, um, and obviously music and, and a bunch of different styles of music and harmonies. I have always loved anything with harmonies in it. So I got to do a lot of really, you know, fun, creative harmonies and, and do it all for this crowd. And, you know, sometimes we got fairly big crowds and it was, you know, I got to have the experience of, you know, feeling the crowd and trying, you know, kind of directing them and trying to pull it out of them and all that, you know, all those and the stagecraft of it, you know, learning how to stand on stage and how to, you know, project and how to turn your chest and all that you know, that was, uh, it was a, it was a blast. I loved it. And the fans were great. And the, the idea that you can just show up and it improves somebody's day, you know, that was what made me feel. It was the very first show we ever played. It was super odd. People were wanting to come up and take pictures with me. And I saw them on Facebook the next day and they looked so excited. And it was just cause they got, they took a picture with me. Mm-hmm. Like that is that's And it sounds very, it sounds very egotistical, but it's like, it is so, it's touching, you know, that people, yeah. you, you go out and you do this thing and I'm having a blast doing it. Cause I get to perform and play music and stuff and, and all those other things too, but it actually like makes somebody's day better. That's, that, it doesn't get any better than that, you know? So how were you able to, you said you've, you've traveled all over the world mm-hmm. with this band. Um, how were you able to manage having a day job? Uh, I'm assuming a Monday through Friday oh, yeah. Yeah. and, 
travel to potentially another country mm -hmm. and having this, are you able to work remote? Like, and I'm talking before COVID times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The before yeah. times. Uh, the before times. Uh, there was very little working remote. Uh, it was, especially then, um, yeah, for the most part, it was work Monday through Friday, hop in a car Friday night and drive to wherever we're going, crash at the hotel when we get there, you know, dead of night, get up early the next morning, work all day, do it again Sunday, drive home, get up, go to work Monday. You know, wow. uh, yeah. it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. You know, we'd have runs where we did, you know, eight, nine, 10. I think the longest run we had was like 13 weekends in a row before we had a break. And we were, yeah, we're all working five days a week at the same time. Um, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> it's yeah, awful. I bet. Um, and it, and it was really rough because of the travel, you know, mm -hmm. um, we live in Kansas city and the Kansas city is the only fair in the Midwest. We didn't play at one point or another. So it was, there was always driving. There was always travel. Uh, yeah, I got super draining and you know, you miss your family, you miss your kids. And, um, but eventually you kind of settle into it and, you know, we eventually, I think over the years kind of figured out how to break it up a little better and how to, how to, how to say no, you know, to right. ourselves as much as to anybody else. Um, because we're all the same, you know, we all was like, Oh, I've never played there. That looks like really, Oh, that's a good opportunity. I want to be able to do, you know, and there's points where you got to stop. Um, yeah, we did, there was at least one year where we did 22 weekends. Um, which is, you know, there's a lot. Yeah. Um, that's almost half the year. Almost. Um, and, and, you know, did it with wives and kids and day jobs and all that stuff. That is was, half a year. It, yeah. How many? How uh, 52. 52. So it's close. Right. Yeah. How um, many did you do? 22. 22. Yeah, yeah. Almost half. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of guys almost got divorced that year. That was, that was, yeah. Fun. Yeah. We realized, yeah, we, we realized we hit our wall. Actually one or two guys did get divorced. Yeah. Oh it was rough. Gosh. It was rough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think that was specifically over the pirate bank. That's more like, you know, the, the, just coincidental, the match, you know, yeah. <laughs> timing. Yeah. It might've, it might've added a little something to it, but it's definitely a strain, you know, and that's yeah, what it came down to was at the end of the day for me anyway, it was like, I love doing this and I like the guys, you know, we were all really close. It was just, I got to be home for a while. I want to be, I want to be at home. And I was, I was already there anyway, but then, and I had told the guys I was going to do it, but then COVID hit and nobody did anything for a couple of years and then started doing little things here and there. Um, and all the guys realized like, Oh no, I like this. I, I forgot how much I love doing this. And I was like, I did too. I'm still leaving though. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, they're, and they're doing great. They're, they're up and running again now and they're doing a great job. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that, that brings me to the, the Renaissance fair world. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to not have this podcast to be only <laughs> Renaissance yeah. fair people. So listener, dear listener, um, please keep in <laughs> mind that I will branch out from interviewing, um, the very easy people that I know, uh, it, it, you're not easy. That was a wrong statement. Um, <clears throat> the people that are most accessible to me as being Renaissance fair performers, but uh, I want to also interject my own personal yeah. thing, which is Renaissance fairs are all over the country, even the world, because I think there's still one in Canada. And they are often comprised of a lot of locals mm -hmm. who have a day job and are 
only coming on in, uh, we call them weekend warriors, where they come in, they set up their shop or whatever it is, um, and perform or work all weekend and then go home on a Sunday night. And I did that for many, many years. I worked seven days a week and I had three jobs. One of them was a rent fair job and the other two were Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 6 and then 6.30 to 11. And that's tough, you know? So going from that to then uh, doing what I'm doing now, which is I tour all over the country. Mm -hmm. I fly in or drive in and my work is really only on the weekend, Mm -hmm. but I have what I call the holy unday of Monday or whatever (laughs) is the day after the weekend where I'd prefer to not do anything at all Mm -hmm. because I worked so hard for so long. It burned me out. Um, so I can, I can relate to you wanting to get out of one or the other. Well, yeah. And, uh, and, and as a family man, yeah. you're probably like, how do I supply for my family and <laughs> still have the house and the dogs and the kids yeah. and the school and the, give them the college or whatever they want to do? We had those talks, you know, in the in the band, we would have, you know, we have our, you know, annual or semi-annual business meeting and sit down and talk about what we want to do for the year and stuff. And it was always, you know, every every time we did it, it was, OK, are we does everybody still want to do day jobs? Do we want to like quit and like go at this full time and stuff. You know, we could, we can get booked, we can do it. And everybody's like, no, I, I can't, I'm not going to replace my salary doing that. And then even if I did, I'm going to see my kids, you know? Right. So it's, yeah. It just was, nobody was willing to do that. You know? Right. Um, yeah, no, God. It sounds like whoever was asking the question was probably willing to. It was, I think it was more, I mean, maybe I think if I think if everybody would have signed on, they probably would have. But I think it was more just like, hey, let's talk about this. So we've gotten it out there. Right. Um, Yeah. I I don't think anybody I don't think anybody really pushed. I don't think anybody really thought about it that hard. It was more just like, okay, look, there's probably this opportunity here. Do we even want to look at it? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, there was never there was never any temptation. I think everybody was like, yeah, that'd be really cool. But no. You know, <laughs> right, right. We've talked about it. I, I've talked about it with my wife. Um, we've talked about for years our our retirement plan is um, getting an RV and just traveling around. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just try and see all the states or whatever. You know, but just mm-hmm. be mobile. You know, um, doing if I you know had a Renfair Act at that time, that would be perfect for me because I would it would give me some structure, you know, it's like, right. okay, I'm going to be at this place for nine weeks and then I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. You know? And during that nine weeks, mid week, yeah. you could do whatever you go want. to the yeah. Glacier National Park or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yellowstone That'd be great. And- yeah. Uh, and it still would be great, but, um, you know, that's still many years off. So who knows, you know, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I, yeah, but I, I definitely found, um, I found more of an affinity for Renaissance festivals through working at them than I ever did as a patron. Um, and now, you know, now I still, I will go every once in a while, mainly my kids are super into it, but I, I get more out of it now that I, I kind of, you know, it's, it's uh, like we were talking about before, you know, like you, you've got the acting background. So when you see people acting, you notice different things and you have a different appreciation for it. Right. Things like that. Now, when I go to fairs, you know, it's like, Oh, I can kind of see how this kind of thing came together and you can mm-hmm. see how, 
you know, if it's a, if it's an act that's really good, you can see their stage discipline and you can see how their mind's working when they're on stage and stuff, you know, and when they're, they're prepping for whatever's next, but doing it in a way that looks natural, you know, they're, oh, they're just moving their mug around. It's like, no, they're getting, you know, the stage ready for something and just happen to be doing a thing that looks natural, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, I've, I've gotten an appreciation for that. That is, it makes it fun. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. That's great. All right. So we've talked about your passion projects. Mm -hmm. I I would assume that Musical Blades was a bit of a passion project. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What other jobs did you have? So you went to college, you went to high school and you were like, okay, I want to be a musician. But then you were like, okay, I'm going to go to college and I want to do journalism. Oh, screw that. I want to do this other kind of job. Oh, screw that. I'm going to go into marketing. (laughs) Yeah. So did you have a job in college mm-hmm. while you were going to school? And if so, what was that job? Yeah, I, I didn't work hard enough in high school to get a lot of scholarships and my parents were not giving me any money for college. So I definitely, yeah, I had to work all the way through college. Um, most of college, I had a couple of like small temporary part-time jobs, but pretty quickly, it's either freshman or sophomore year, even I landed at a copy store actually. Um, and I kind of worked my way up there. I worked 30 ish hours a week all the way through school, making copies and eventually making copies and eventually such a dated reference. I know. (laughs) Um, eventually, yeah, eventually I was managing the store. Um, while I was in school, once I graduated, I, um, obviously kept managing it, but then also took on like the corporate sales and tried to set up corporate accounts and stuff. Um, did that for about a year after college, uh, before I realized like I hate sales. Mm. So got to, went to an ad agency and took off, but yeah, yeah. Worked at and ran a copy store for cool. several years in college. Yeah. Cool. Uh, then you, you said you went to, um, I'm sorry, repeat. What did you, oh, no. where did you go after the copy store? After the copy agency? store. Yeah. I went into, started so my your, first ad agency. Yeah. What was your job at the, like, what was your title at the ad agency? Um, I started as a media analyst. Um, this is like early two thousands. So most like the biggest chunk of marketing was done in TV at that point. Um, the, the internet was barely, I mean, the internet marketing was in such a nascent thing. Like nobody really knew how to do it. It was just for porn. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Whereas now it's porn Porn and and live journal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Now it's porn and ads. Um, but the, the, uh, yeah, I started as a media analyst. So basically, um, when our spots would run, we had the, you know, 800 number on it and stuff. I would get, you know, uh, post logs from the TV station to know exactly what time our spots ran. And then I'd pull the call details to know exactly what time every phone call came in. Wow. And then I would do the attribution to figure out, okay, how much money did we spend here? How many leads did we get? What's our cost per lead? What's our target? Did it work? Did it not? you know, look at it over a trend line, look at it over, you know, is it this program or is it this big rotator or whatever? Um, and just kind of measure the results. Wow. Um, I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) I was, I was okay at it, but it was very much a, like it's, it's where now I have a big appreciation for the difference between a, a reporter versus an analyst, like somebody who makes the reports and does the data Mm -hmm. versus somebody that consumes the reports and tries to figure out what it, what you learn from it. And which do you prefer? Analysts. Analysts. Figuring it out. Yeah. Putting the report together is 
all about minutia and fixing Excel formulas and making sure old lines are right and all this stuff that I just, I don't have the attention to detail to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not my skill set. And I got real close to being fired. Um, but I got <laughs> after three or four months there, um, the, the guy who hired me, the media director at the time, um, I, he, he, he always liked me and we always got along. It was just, I wasn't good at this thing. Um, he bumped me up technically up to a media buyer, which is consuming the reports, you know, looking at what works, what doesn't work, coming up with ideas for what you want to do next, um, figuring out what ads you want to run and where, and all, you know, a lot of analysis, but then you take that analysis and you go and you talk to your sales rep at the TV station and you negotiate your rates, you negotiate what you're going to be able to buy, how cheap you can get it, all that stuff. Um, that, that I was pretty good at, you know, that was, you know, relationship management and, you know, being persuasive and figuring out how to, it was weird because as much as I hate sales, you're still selling, you're still like, you know, what do they want out of this conversation and how can I make them feel like they're getting it? So that, that environment just at that particular agency at that particular time was a very boiler room kind of environment. Like it was really cutthroat and it was, every penny. And if, it, and if you, if your rep, if your sales rep didn't feel like they had lost the conversation, then that meant you lost. Like somebody had to lose this conversation. Hmm. Um, so it was very cutthroat, very intense, um, really rough. And it was, you would present, you know, every week we had to present to our higher ups, you know, what we had done and what we were doing and what our negotiations were. And if they didn't feel like you did enough, they would say, well, you want me to call and get a better deal? And if you called their bluff on it, they would. <laughs> and of course they have, uh, it's back to the title thing. They they have a better title. So automatically they have a leg up in the conversation where you didn't, you know? Right. Um, so there, yeah. it was very stressful. Um, and there were a lot of 12 hour days and a lot of, you know, pulling your hair out, trying to get things to work. But my wife and I were both right out of college, very early in our careers, didn't have kids. And we both were just like, she's, she's a teacher. So she was, there's a lot of extra hours in teaching, especially early on. Mm. Um, so we were both just like, we had a conversation about it at one point. It's like, look, we're just going to put in a lot of hours here and yeah. try to get a good foundation in our careers. And then, you know, we'll figure it out later, you know? Um, and that's, we were lucky enough that that's how it worked, you know? Um, but yeah, media buyer, senior media buyer, eventually they, they asked me to open up kind of a satellite office that was kind of, it gets a little in the weeds and arguably a little shady, but they, I, I, you know, did, I kind of ran my own satellite office of media buyers for a little bit. And then after six or seven years, um, kind of felt like I had, like I understood media and I wasn't, I, I didn't have that many new things coming across, you know, what I was doing. Um, so I wanted to move to the interactive side because that was now a huge thing. And it was obviously, where everything was headed anyway. And I didn't know anything about it. So I, I managed to, an ad agency is, has wickedly fast turnover. Like most people in marketing come to an ad agency to get their agency experience. And then they go to whatever job they actually want. Most jobs, most, especially private jobs with like a marketing department, you have your entry level is you have two to three years of agency experience. And then you can start there. Then you're at the entry level. Interesting. So agencies hire fresh out of school, wicked fast turnover. So if you can stick it out, and it's because it's a grind, you know, but if you can stick it out for very long, you've got a ton of seniority real fast, you know. 
So at six or seven years, I'm like, I want to go work over there. It wasn't a real hard sell. I was like, oh, this guy's got a bunch of seniority and he's proven that he can do a good job, at least at this job, you right, know, so right. let's put him over there. Um, went over to interactive and yeah, that was, uh, it was well-timed and it was, it turned out like I had a fantastic, actually two in a row, fantastic bosses there that were really, really good about mentoring and coaching. Um, which is when I learned the value of that, um, which is why I'm now as a manager myself. And when I eventually, even in that course of that job, I got promoted up to manage a team too. Um, I learned from them a lot with, you know, how mentoring and coaching and how to do it the right way and how to manage the relationships with your people and how to develop them because it's not just telling them how to do their job. You know, um, that's where I found the real passion for me. I love marketing and I love, you know, the buzzword multi-channel marketing or integrated marketing, you know, putting all of the pieces together. I really love doing that. Um, I'm absolutely head over heels in love with mentoring and coaching. And I like, I like having that, I like the extra responsibility. I like that there's, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, it's probably sadistic. Like I like feeling like there's weight on me that I have to, like, I'm responsible for things, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, I don't know if it's because like, well, I need to feel important or if it's like, I just like feeling like I'm doing something that matters one way or the other. But I, I love having people that I'm developing and that, that I can, that, that, want advice from me, you know, Mm. I can give advice to people all day, but good or bad or whether they (laughs) want it or not, right. Having a team that actually wants advice, you know, and, and setting it up in a way that they, they know that. And I I say this to them when I start with them, it's like, I'm, it's obvious when I'm stressed out. Like I don't, I don't hide it very well. I wear it really obviously on my sleeve. Um, but it's really important to me that they know that, um, even when I've got a lot going on, if they need something from me, they're not interrupting me from work. Like that project is interrupting me from them. Like they're the first priority for me. And I'm, I'm lucky enough now to be in a place that follows that thinking, that line of thinking Mm -hmm. to a large degree. Um, and is very much like it was, you know, as I moved into management here, it was the directive was very much, okay, get all of the direct stuff off of your plate so that you can focus your time on the people that you're managing, you know, which is exactly what it should be. You know, now I'm managing people doing things that I have some experience in. So there's a lot of, you know, tactical conversation, but specifically how to do this thing or specifically what to change and stuff like that. But there's a lot of, you know, career development and how to manage situations and how to have tough conversations and giving constructive feedback and stuff like that. You know, that Mm. that's the, I love doing that stuff. All right. What, um, what is your typical day? Let's talk me through. You've, uh, you've showered, you've had your coffee, whatever it is, you rolled out of bed, you're on your way to work. What does your typical day from clocking in quote unquote, to clocking out? Um, so some of this is like super job specific, but, um, that's what this first thing is, um, looking at how yesterday went, um, and you, you know, that's not, it's never a total surprise, but you know, now all the, everything's been totaled. You have the total sum of the day. You can put it all, you know, how much money did we spend? Where did we spend it? How much money did we make? How much money did we spend in order to make it? So not just like how much should we spend in marketing? How much should we spend in, uh, people working those leads and screening those calls and, you know, all that stuff, um, trying to figure out how 
how successful the day was by a number of different metrics, but it all basically rolls up to profitability, you know? Um, so there's a lot of like pulling reports together and stuff. That's usually the first half hour, 45 minutes of my day. And not just looking at how we did, but why, you know, mm. there's a lot of, uh, I always start my day really early with a lot of analysis and math, like trying to figure out, which is very against my personality, but, um, it's in it very much looking at like, okay, what was different yet two days ago versus yesterday? Where, mm-hmm. where, what shifted, you know, did that shift make sense when we did it? Did we do it on purpose? And did it right. make sense when we did it on purpose? Um, and did it work? You know, did the thing that we shifted money from A to B, does B do better typically? Did it make sense for us to do that? And did it actually perform the way we expected it to? And if yes or no, then what are we doing today? And, and that's why I, that's the first thing I do is because that's how you set up your day. So like, this is what today's story is going to be about, you know, is making sure that we either capitalize on or do better than yesterday. Right. Okay. Um, then usually about nine, I think uh, I have my first team meeting. So I'll have I'll pull my team together, go over those numbers talk about, you know, what big projects do we have on the horizon? What are people working on? Um, make sure everybody understands, okay, well, this happened yesterday. We were short here and we were long here. And okay, here are the adjustments we're going to make and talk through kind of the the priorities and the order of the day and make sure that I know what they have on their plate. You know, what big meetings do they have? Do they need help with it? You know, I try to stay out of their hair as much as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and my job isn't to tell them how to do their job. My job is to make sure they have the uh, to to create the context in which they can do the best they can at their job, right? Great. So, and most of the time, it's getting the f out of the way, you know. Right. Um, so, understanding, saying, okay, well, maybe not, you know, that push it, you know, try and you know put some guardrails around it, and then you know say go, and then after that, I mean, it's uh, that that's all the structure I have for my day mm-hmm. <laughs> is that first you know hour and a half, two hours of the day. After that it depends on what happened in those first couple of couple of hours. You know um, it may be talking to a bunch of different internal teams to figure out something that changed or follow up on something I'm waiting on or, you know, deliver, you know, if there's something big happened the previous day, I've got to talk to all the higher ups about what happened and why, and, you know, what are we doing about it and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of depends from there. A um, okay. lot of a lot of, you know, looking at creative and looking at scripts and looking at, you know, did things actually go the way they were supposed to go? And then how do we react to it? Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Do you see yourself in five to 10 years working not necessarily for this company, mm-hmm. maybe for this company um, or in the same job type of role? Certainly the same type of role. Um, it's it's cheesy, but the the. The idea of, again, it's a buzzword, integrated marketing, the idea of not being the guy that is is actually executing any of these specific disciplines. You know, I'm not buying the media. I'm not managing PPC. I'm not talking to the affiliates directly. I have teams that do that, you know, but I'm kind of sitting, not above it all, but I'm sitting, you know, I'm looking at how it all mixes together and figuring mm-hmm. out how to get the best out of all of it and balance it. That is, again, cheesy. That's my dream job. Like I've wanted to do, I've been trying to get to that place for probably 10 years. Wow. And it finally, and it was just through chance, but I ended up at this job. And it was just at this job just to, like I said, just build up the affiliate base of this one new vertical. 
Yeah. And as, you know, and I just talked to the, you know, the senior director at the time about how I, you know, what I wanted to do and how I wanted to grow. But um, it was very much just, you know, being in the right place at the right time, being in an environment that let me start doing those things mm-hmm. and saying, hey, I want to test this and also kind of manage that too. And then I also kind of want to manage this and I wanted, you know, and then, you know, thankfully, you know, luckily doing a good job with it more often than not that it, you know, they were comfortable saying, okay, yeah, you can keep doing that, you know? Um, so that's, again, other duties is required, but I, I, yeah, I, I hope that I'm doing this kind of job one way or the other. Um, I honestly, right now I'm three years in at this company. I really like it. I've been, um, pleasantly surprised that, um, it's one of those weird places that the interview actually follows through to be, you know, it's actually what the day to day is like, you know, not a lot of blame storming, not a lot of, you know, uh, you know, pointing fingers. It's not cutthroat. Everybody's generally just trying to do a good job. You know, um, I, so, you know, uh, I could see, it wouldn't shock me if I was still at this company in that amount of time. Um, marketing in particular, especially marketing in the Midwest, there's a lot of job hopping. Um, the, the, the Midwest is kind of that there's, there's your big agencies in New York and LA and stuff that are big trendy agencies, but most of them are in Chicago, Kansas city, sometimes like Dallas and tech in parts of Texas. They're all kind of in the middle of the country because it's easy to get (laughs) to and from your clients, you know, or where you're going to do your shoots or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a lot of job hopping and marketing. Um, most of that is in the agency world, which I'm going to try very hard to never have to go back to. Um, I don't, I'm too old for that. I don't do that anymore. Um, but yeah, certainly that was a lot of words to say. Definitely hope to be in this kind of job. Um, and it, yeah, and it wouldn't shock me if it was at this place. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Great. Let's go back in time. Okay. Again. Back to high school, Ryan. Okay. Knowing what you know now, mm-hmm. would you have chosen the same path? Uh, or, what? or is there like, you know, would you have <laughs> gone more rock star? You know. Or anything else, really? I've got I've got a, a kid that turns fifteen uh, tomorrow, actually. Wow. And I got a kid that just turned twelve a couple months ago, so I'm. I'm thinking a lot about that in particular lately. Um, and I, you know, I, I, high school was rough for me. I was, I went to a, this is going to be again, a lot of words for a simple question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I went to a, a private religious school in Tulsa until I was invited to not go there anymore oh. uh, by the administration. And then I moved to small town of Kansas with my dad and finished school Um, there were obviously a lot of things that I did there that I probably, I would, I would not want my kids to follow the path that I did. And it's awfully hard to look back and be like, yeah, I got expelled from school. Pretty good, solid choice that I made there, you know? Right. But, um, there's no way I would have gone, I would have ended up in anything like the path I ended on, uh, had I, had I not had those mistakes. So definitely mistakes, um, definitely not things that I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to say like, I, I, they were, you know, I don't know how you tell if a choice is bad, you know, is it bad because of what happened at the time or is it bad because of where it led you, you know, um, if it's the latter, then I, know, I wouldn't change anything. 
You know, it was because of the high school that I ended up in that had a really strong uh, journalism program that I, you know, figured out I have an eye for photography and figured out that I can write. At that point, I wrote editorials for the most part, but I heard, you know, parents talking about the editorial they read in the student paper, you know, not knowing that it was me that wrote it and stuff like they got into conversations about it. They made me fall in love with writing. You know, I wouldn't have gone to KU. I wouldn't have run across the first English professor that I didn't know had even noticed me, but pulled me aside once I'd asked what I was majoring in. And I said, well, you know, journalism, but I'm not sure news or whatever. And he stopped me and said, just write, just write something. Oh. I'd never, none of that would have happened. I wouldn't have met my wife. Right. I wouldn't have, yeah, you know, I never would have gone into journalism. I never would have gone into marketing. I never, you know, none of this stuff would have happened. I almost, you know, there was a point where I was going to major in theory and composition and then go to seminary and become, <laughs> and become Whoa. a minister. Yeah. And you, you? know me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. No, right. All right. Um, that I, I, I can't even get my head around how different my life would have been. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, by and large, pretty happy with how things are going, you know, but again, you know, had you asked me that 10 years ago, I don't know, you know, and you asked me that for 10 years from now, I don't know. You know, we'll see where I'm at right now. I've never, I've never really believed in the idea of a five-year plan. You know, when people will say like, where do you want to be in five? Where do you see yourself in five years? I'm like, I don't know, employed, you know, right. um, I don't want, I, I've never, I kind of have like an, and I, I've never really, uh, examined this about myself, but I have a kind of negative knee jerk reaction to that. The idea of that question. Mm. And I don't know if it's cause like my childhood was super unpredictable and that just baked itself in. So I just don't think that way. Or if it's just like, I don't know, I've never, you know, I'm just rolling with it. And so far it's kind of worked, you know, that's great. Um, but yeah, right now I'm, I, yeah, I can't imagine making other choices and it's so weird to look back now and, see how these little things and, you know, obvious mistakes and really stupid decisions and mm -hmm. things that I didn't have any law, you know, I could never back up with logic, but I did it anyway, that led to, you know, here I am, I've got a bunch of weird ass stories, but I've also, you know, I've got a pretty decent career and I've got a great family and I've got a lot of friends that I really care about. And, you know, I run a, a pretty kick-ass D&D game, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, yeah. All right. Yeah. We haven't even talked about passions yet. So <laughs> you've got D and D as a passion. It is now. I grew again. Grew up a pastor's kid, so I didn't in the in Oklahoma in the eighties, like in the middle of the buckle of the Bible Belt during the Satanic Panic. So and it was evangelical. So I like I I, I knew of Dungeons and Dragons because it was evil. You know? Right. Right. I was. It was my first season in the pirate band. I was in my thirties, and wow. a couple of guys in the band started talking about D and D at random. And the singer said, yeah, I think I want to start up and run another game. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa you guys play? He's like, yeah, absolutely. I said, can I, can I play? Can I do that? And they had to like teach me. No, God, yeah. that's my you. That's why I was like, I don't know yeah. how you even do. I thought there was a, I thought it was a board game. Oh. Like I didn't know anything about it. I knew uh -huh. it had weird dice. That was it. Um, and they had to explain like the basic mechanics of it. But the first session, I was super awkward and I was really uncomfortable. But the first session I was hooked. Nice. And I look back at it now. I'm like, I would have been, I would have gotten into so much less trouble as a kid if I had had that as a creative outlet. Interesting. I mean, without a doubt, you yeah. know? Um, so I, yeah, so I, I played a bunch of games and eventually it was like, I want to try running one. And it was, uh, one of the guys in the band telling me over and over again, like, dude, you, you, 
you're kind of annoying as a player <laughs> because I'm like this as a player. You know? right. um, like you've always got these big characters and you're always, you know, and it's funny and it's entertaining, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for other people. You know, um, he's like, you would be really good as a, as a DM, like running it and writing the story and have, you know, mm-hmm. um, so I finally super uncomfortable, got outside of my comfort zone and of course pulled him into my game because I'm like, okay, you've got to be my crutch, you know, you're right, my safety net. Right. Um, but yeah, started running. I, I've got one long-term one that I'm running and I've got uh, another one that somebody else asked me to start up that'll probably start in like November-ish. And, um, that one's going to be even more of a challenge because I'm just going to like wing it. <laughs> I'm just going to make it up as it goes along. Okay. Um, but again, it's back to, you know, it's improv, it's performance and it's, you know, yeah. um, yeah, I love it. It's super dorky. I love it. It's cool. great. I had, I had no idea. And I only discovered it, you know, 10 years ago, maybe. So, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. My, I didn't really play D and D much when I was younger either. Mm-hmm. I didn't get in, I didn't even know it existed as mm-hmm. a thing until college in the late in mid nineties. And somebody ran up to me at night in the music building. I, I wasn't even a musician, but I'm a band aid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really like all the musicians. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so I was visiting my boyfriend and by, I, I also had a job at the college radio station. Oh, so nice. I was a DJ and a manager of that nice. anyway. And it was in the music building and I was, I remember going to the bathroom and then coming out of the bathroom and this guy runs past me and he stops and he turns around and he looks at me and he goes, have you been bitten? And, it, and I went, no. And he goes, okay, you're a virgin and I bit you. And I went, okay. You're halfway? You're not? Wait. Nope. <laughs> and, then, and then they ran away. And that was the last I heard about it. And I remember talking to some friends the next day of like this weird experience that I had. And they went, oh, yeah, ooh, that's Vampire the Masquerade. It's like a LARP thing. It's like, I'm like, I don't even know what the words that you just said right. are. <laughs> like, but I'm going to learn about I'm a it. gamer. I love video games and I loved huh. board games. I played a lot of board games by myself, which is quite the challenge. Yeah. But you learn how to play them that mm-hmm. way, really. Um, you learn how to cheat yeah. and uh, cheat against yourself is quite the challenge because <laughs> you figure it you out know, pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I cracked my code, me. Right. <laughs> um, I would play Clue by myself. That's oh, that's sh- what a, wow. a loner kid I was. Anyway, so um, so I didn't even really know what D and D was until I had a partner who played Magic: The Gathering a lot mm. and then liked D and D. Still never actually played uh, until I met my friend James, who in 2007, I moved up to Washington State and I was cast in Sleepy Hollow Mm -hmm. as Katrina Van Tassel and he was Ichabod Crane. Okay. He happened to work for Hasbro and was a writer of D and D and magic, the gathering stuff wow. for wizards of the coast. Yeah. And, uh, and if I dropped his name right now, people will be like, click, click, click. She's <laughs> a fantasy writer. Right, right. Um, anyway, but to me, he was just this actor dude. I knew named James who he did choir stuff. He was a, a pastor. I yeah. think he, he does sermons. Huh. Um, anyway, 
and he said, Hey, I have this game. Uh, it's D and D and I made my own world called Aquella. Do you want to oh. play? And I was like, yeah, I've never played it before. That sounds fun. My only real introduction to it was freaks and geeks right. watching an episode of that. Right. And so my partner was a dwarf and uh, named Carlos, of course. Thanks, Freaks and Geeks. And <laughs> I was Jessie. And she was a dual wielder. It was a lot of fun. Right. Uh, and she'd flip her hair all the time. That was her big thing was in battle. She'd go, okay, I flip my hair, flip, flip. And then <laughs> dual wield. Really, really dumb, but a lot of fun. And we only did a few episodes mm-hmm. uh, games. Yeah. Uh, only a couple of them. Still a lot of fun. Yeah. Had, a, had a blast doing it. And then I recorded, I was on a show that, uh, I was on a show where it was a YouTube show called press record. Mm -hmm. And we had a, uh, Chris Turlock was our DM and I think he's big in the D and D world. So drop that name as well. (laughs) James Wyatt and Chris Turlock are in my life. (laughs) Anyway, you can see that on the internet. It's on YouTube still where we did a one shot where Chris was our DM and I was really quiet and, and awkward during that session just because I'd never really, I mean, I played D and D with my friend, right? but I didn't play D and D with like cameras on yeah, me. Exactly. And it, it was yeah. a completely, and I was playing with people who knew D and D backwards and forwards. Right. And we were playing on this game table that was fantastic. And I was like, I'm out of my element, <laughs> uh, but it was so fun. Yeah. Anyway, all the um, good stuff happens outside your comfort zone, you know, for sure. For yeah. sure. All right. We're going to wrap this up. Sure. Uh, one last question for you, which is, do you have any advice to a human out there who says, you know what? I think I want to be a senior mar- manager of marketing. What's uh, your one nugget of advice? Specifically a human. Yeah. You, you were no, very specific about this. No other mammals, okay. reptiles, or any other uh, weird entities. Entities. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Uh, gosh, um, do as many different things as you can. Um, Mm. I, I spent a lot of my early career willfully purposely trying to do as many different jobs as I could media buyer and PBC buyer and interactive marketing manager and whatever, you know, like tried to do as many different things in as many different disciplines as I could with my theory being it would make my resume look really good. Like I've got this breadth of knowledge and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I just discovered along the way that like, what I really like is, you know, kind of being able to see all of it, you know? Mm. Um, I'm really fascinated by how they all influence each other and how it all comes together. Um, but you know, the, the potential downsides for, varying your experiences and doing as many different things as you can, as long as they interest you. Um, or even if they don't, but might, if you don't know, try, you know, the potential downsides are so few and far between, you know, you're going to try a bunch of different things and either you'll figure out, like, I like doing all of these things or you'll figure out, I actually hate doing four of these with this fifth one. It's kick-ass, you know, right, that's what I mean, right. you know, um, don't, there's, there's a real, real tendency I think in any industry, probably to whatever you get into first, get good at it and just stick with that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, try and like I said, get out of your comfort zone, try and do as many different things as you can 
and just experience it. Experience it all. Get as many experiences as you can. Great. Marketing or not, you know. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Thank, Thank you so much. You. All right. I'm going to do the sign off now. Okay. Which is wait. also going to be live. Great. I keep forgetting to mention that at the top of, <laughs> uh, before we press record. <clears throat> so thank you, dear listener, for listening to this babble at the end. Fantastic. Work History is myself, Cass Townsend, as the host, a jackhead of all trades. Theme song is wrapped by Greg Lestraps. Chris Kempton is our associate producer. There's a new episode every Wednesday. Visit us on patreon.com slash workhistory. Check the show notes for any additional info. And remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and share because it really does help. So what's your work history?